My name is Eddie Gordon. I'm the courseware designer here at Pragmatic Institute. Today's conversation is brought to you by the Pragmatic Alumni Community. We're a home of over 26,000 product professionals. It's a place to find templates and resources and guides and peer exchanges and all kinds of fancy stuff. Um, no matter how you train with us, Pragmatic Institute, when you become an alumni, you get lifetime access to the pragmatic alumni community. It's a robust community of product peers who are uh, generous with their knowledge and their expertise. It is an incredible resource. If you've not made use of it yet, you are missing out. You can find out more about that at pragmaticinstitute.com slash PAC, P-A-C. It's time to introduce today's topic. We are going to talk about how to optimize win-loss and increase your win rate. We have with us today Andrew Peterson, co-founder of Close, and I am delighted to welcome him today to talk about the importance of win-loss and ways to uh, elevate and ignite those programs in your own company. Um, all right, Andrew, I have delayed long enough. How are you, my friend? It's so good to have you here. Yeah, doing well, Eddie. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we've uh, we've always loved Pragmatic Institute at Closed. We uh, our first employee we hired back when we were in the basement days. He was a Pragmatic alum, and uh, way back when, when I started my journey with win loss analysis, some of the very best content I could find back when I was at a company called Qualtrics was was from Pragmatic. So appreciate that. You guys have been a part of my win loss journey the entire time. So excited to to lead this webinar today because I've been fortunate to learn a lot about the topic. Obviously, having started a company closed that that specializes in win-loss analysis. And in my prior life, when I was at Qualtrics for eight years, it's another Utah-based company, you know, closed. We are based in Utah. But at Qualtrics, um, I was involved in sales leadership and then the GM of a product that we launched there. And um, we uh, had the challenge of trying to, to better understand why we're winning and losing and implementing win-loss analysis there. So I've had, I've had a lot of lessons learned the hard way just through hands-on practice at Qualtrics and then through our experiences with our customers at Closed. And it's obviously a topic I'm super passionate about. So I appreciate everybody showing up today. And you know what, Andrew, I, I realized as you were talking about your past lives and successes there that I skipped over your bio and I don't want you to have to, to, to tout yourself because you, you're a humble guy. How about I read your bio so people have all that information about you uh, right up front and you don't have to say it. I'll say yeah, it. We'll go, I'll you go quick. Yeah, we, Can I do it? Andrew Peterson is a seasoned pro product professional who has worked across a multitude of Fortune 500 companies, providing research solutions and driving and executing those strategies for over 500 brands globally. Andrew is the co-founder of Closed, one of the strongest win-loss companies in the country. It focuses on providing effective strategies to customers that are customized and offer impactful initiatives they can execute. See, Andrew's too humble. He wouldn't have said all that cool stuff that. about himself. That sounds like I wrote it, so I appreciate it, Eddie. Almost, almost. <laughs> Let's dive into this. Let's get, get rolling. And then as Eddie said, if any of you got like a burning question that goes through uh, the chat, or the Q&A feature, um, he'll, he'll try and toss a few of those out as we go, and then we'll save some time at the end for more Q&A. Um, but to kick things off, 
most people on this webinar, the reason you're here is because you know what win-loss analysis is and you're probably trying to get better at it. But to just lay the groundwork, let's, let's define win-loss analysis. The way we do that at closed is like this. Win-loss analysis is the practice of systematically capturing and analyzing the reasons you win and lose sales opportunities so that you can improve win rates and build sustainable competitive advantage. Um, sometimes we like to use this analogy. You know, we would compare win-loss analysis to film study for professional sports teams. You know, what professional sports team wouldn't take the time to go back and review their wins and their losses to figure out how they can get better? You know, in this day and age, no team would skip film study. Um, but it's been fascinating uh, to find that a lot of companies are neglectful when it comes to practicing win-loss analysis and going back and in a disciplined, ongoing, effective manner, analyze why they're having the outcomes that they're having at the end of the sales process. And we'll talk a little bit more about the benefits, but just a funny story in current events that's come up recently that uh, caught my attention was uh, the story about Kyler Murray, the, the awesome skilled quarterback of the Arizona Cardinals. He caught a little bit of flack lately and the team did because they tried to structure a, uh, a clause in his massive hundreds of millions of dollar contract that would require him to at least do like four hours of film study every week. Um, historically, at one point in an interview, he made this comment. He just said, I think I was so blessed or am so blessed with the cognitive skills to just go out there and see, what, see it before it happens. I'm not one of those guys that's going to kill myself with doing film study. I like to contrast that. With, you know, the fact is he's an incredibly talented person and a lot of companies likewise can have a lot of success, grow really quickly, be successful without win-loss analysis. But to be your very best version of yourself or to be the best competitor you can be or to be as successful as possible as a company, you should have the attitude of, of a champion like Kobe Bryant who famously said, I devoured film and watched everything I could get my hands on. It was always fun to watch, study, and ask the most important question of why. Of why was he having his failures? Why was he winning? And what could he do differently in the future to win more? And that is, is obviously something that led to, to his greatness. So as companies, we should have that same attitude. So what are some of the benefits of win-loss analysis? Why is it so valuable and important for a company to have a disciplined approach to win-loss analysis. Well, there's tons of them. It, it impacts a business in so many ways. I've listed off a few of them here. So if any of you are in a situation where you're trying to build a business case and, and garner resources and funding to implement a good win-loss program, this slide here might be helpful, especially too, as we talk about potential outcomes and ROI. But if you have good data and intelligence around why you're winning and losing deals, it's so incredibly helpful at the executive level to set strategic priorities. You know, if, if the leadership team at your company really wants to make the right decisions of what's gonna help the business grow more and grow faster, they need to have a concrete idea, data-driven answer to why the company is performing the way it's performing. And one critical aspect of that or element of that is understanding why your prospective customers are or aren't choosing to purchase your product or service. Um, likewise, it helps drive better sales performance. You learn incredible things about how your sales team is operating, how well they're executing and what they can do to perform at a higher level 
when you get candid feedback from your prospective buyers about how the sales experience went and how it influenced their decision. It also helps product strategy. Uh, it's going to help with product prioritization. You know, I come from the world of customer feedback and NPS at Qualtrics. Qualtrics is one of the world leaders in, in NPS technology for, for running customer experience and net promoter score programs. And there's a ton of value in capturing feedback from your current customers about what their experience has been with your product. But that doesn't provide an answer to why certain prospective customers never came through the front door. They never decided to purchase your product. And so if your entire roadmap is built around satisfying the needs of your current customers, you're neglecting the broader market and those opportunities that you've lost and those customers that as is your solution isn't appealing to. So how can you go out and win those customers? Win-loss analysis helps you answer that question, hone your product strategy and help inform what do we need to do from a product standpoint to bring more of those customers through the front door. It's also an incredible source of competitive intelligence. Um, there's a lot of tools out there today that help you capture competitive intelligence and monitor what's going on with your competitors. And arguably the very best source of competitive insight is what's in the minds of your buyers that just evaluated you against your competitors and actually went through the evaluation process in the context of solving a very specific problem and how they perceive you against your competitors. And if you can start capturing that data and feedback from those buyers, it's gonna be one of your most powerful sources of competitive intel, especially as they open up and share what their decision criteria were and how you compared uh, to your, your various competitors in you know, solving for those decision criteria. Um, and then it's a powerful tool for marketing as well to better understand buyers, to empathize with them more and understand what they care most about, what's driving their decision-making in the buying process so they can craft better content, they can refine pricing strategy and all those things. So just incredibly powerful benefits come from win-loss analysis that impact a whole bunch of different teams across your organization. And at the end of the day, it drives powerful ROI for the business that's quantifiable. Um, there has been awesome research done by, by really respected advisories like Accenture and Gartner about the impact that a powerful, effective win-loss program can have on a business. You know, Accenture said win rates have typically increased by 18% for companies that perform win-loss reviews consistently. Um, Gartner said they've seen, they've observed companies that have had as much as a 50% improvement in win rates after implementing a rigorous win-loss program. Um, and that's, that means serious dollars. You know, we have an example here, a company with $100 million in annual sales revenue. If you just make a minor improvement to your win rate, as little as 5%, not improving it by 5%, just an improvement of 5%. You know, that might be, you have a 20% win rate, just improving it to 21% that could be an impact of $5 million. This is something that's worth spending money on to do it well and to do it right. Um, and it's gonna have an incredible impact on your business and those that spearhead these programs and champion them and do them right for their organizations, do themselves a favor in their career too. It can be career defining for people that run and own a win-loss program and become the trusted source of their executive team for win-loss intelligence. So I also pulled this quote from, from Paul Young. I keep moving my window around, sorry, so I can see these things. Paul Young from the Pragmatic Institute, VP of Enterprise Solutions there has this great, this great quote that I love about
about the power of win-loss analysis. He said, one of the most chronically underutilized ways of getting product data is by using win-loss analysis. It can help you sharpen your understanding of competitive threats and positioning, what customers value the most in your product, and where to focus your product marketing tactics to match the buyer's expectations. So hopefully everybody here is convinced this is something worth spending time, effort, resources, and money on. Let's get into like some of the details about how you can do it effectively. Um, but real quick, how common is win-loss analysis? Uh, it's a question we get a lot, and it's actually changed a lot from what we've observed over the last 10 years or so. Um, there's, there were studies that I saw 10 plus years ago where the minority of companies claimed that they were doing some sort of formal win-loss analysis. In a study we did recently with the Pragmatic Institute and a survey that we fielded that some of you may have participated in, we were surprised that 79% of companies reported that they were doing some form of win-loss analysis. That's a dramatic shift and it shows that companies are starting to realize that this is a gap that they need to address, that they need better data-driven answers about why they're winning and losing. Not surprisingly though, 64% of those companies said that their program was less than two years old. So this is generally a newer practice at most organizations. But of those companies, 98% are planning to either maintain or increase their level of investment in the practice. So there's just widespread interest in win-loss analysis. Companies are realizing they should be doing it. They're starting to invest in it. Oftentimes it's on a limited scale. It's their first try. They're learning how it, how it works, trying to get better at it. But almost everybody is like, we're getting value out of this and we know we need to continue to invest more to do it better and to do it more broadly across our company. And so that brings me to a concept that at closed, we refer to as the win-loss maturity curve. This is sort of the progression that we see companies go through as they implement win-loss analysis. There's like this maturity that happens as companies go from stage to stage of implementing this and getting better at it over time. And as they derive value from what they try at first, they realize they should do it on a larger scale and they should be more committed to it so they can get even more value from the practice. And it's almost the same at every company that we talk to. There's somewhere along this spectrum. So as we got, walk through this, you can just kind of self-evaluate and think about where is my company on this spectrum? And it starts with companies we talk to that are in that 21% of companies that are doing nothing. They're not even, they're not even doing win-loss analysis at all. It's not on their radar. Uh, then companies realize like, that's not a good, that's not good. We should be doing this. And so they progress to some sort of internal approach to win-loss analysis, some, some analysis of data, data that they have in internal systems or that they capture from internal stakeholders. Like for example, let's set up a drop-down field in the CRM for our sales reps to fill out and mandate it so that every time they win or lose an opportunity, they have to supply us with the reason why that deal was won or lost. Companies almost always start there, especially sales stakeholders, like sales leaders. If you ever talk to rev ops people like revenue operations, sales operations, their, their gut reaction when they hear win-loss analysis is, oh yeah, let's build a process in the CRM and get our sales reps telling us why those deals were won and lost. And over time, they realize there are quite a few flaws with that approach. Sales reps, 
sometimes are just neglectful about putting the data in. Even when they are introspective and diligent about putting the data in, it's hard to build a construct of questions that are effective for getting an answer. You know, giving them a single select pick list in the CRM just is not nearly robust enough to understand why a deal was won or lost. But then more importantly, and we'll get to this a little bit later, sales reps don't actually know why they win and lose deals. And so if you're relying on them to tell you, your data set, even if it looks pretty, is probably wrong. So companies realize that and they move along this maturity curve to some sort of ad hoc research project where they start trying to reach out to buyers to get feedback and they make it sort of a one-off strategic project. Hey, we don't, we don't have these answers. Let's go get them. Let's put a tiger team together, a cross-functional team. Let's have the product marketing team or someone in product management who's really proactive that goes out and drives like a research project. Go, they themselves maybe go and talk to customers and get the feedback and pull it together and report back to other stakeholders. It's kind of one-off thing at one point in time. And it's helpful and they learn things that they didn't know before that they weren't hearing from their sales team, but it's limited in scope and it's a single point in time. And those companies then realize we need to be doing this on an ongoing basis. And so they roll out some sort of ongoing approach of capturing buyer feedback, but that's limited in scope, usually because the champion or the person that's running that program only has purview over a certain part of the business, a certain product line or a certain segment of customers, or they have limited resources and bandwidth to really try to capture feedback from all buyers across the entire sales pipeline. But it's way better because they're doing it on an ongoing basis and they have a disciplined approach and hopefully they have a methodology for tracking themes and trends across those, those interactions with customers and it becomes a much more valuable source of win-loss data than anything they've had in the past. But then best-in-class companies take that a step further and realize we can't just be doing this on a limited scale for certain deals or one-off deals that are really interesting. Like we need to be doing this across our entire sales pipeline on an ongoing basis so that we, we can paint a picture of really why we are winning and losing across the entire business and then ideally have enough data there to drill down into segments and sub-segments of the business, drill down by product line, by customer segment, by geography, and still have a meaningful data set when we run those drill downs so that we can answer all of the questions that our board and our executive team and other stakeholders have about why we're winning and losing in different pockets of the business. So when we walk through that with people, it all, they often begs the question of like, okay, we have an existing win-loss program. We're somewhere on that spectrum. How can we progress along that spectrum? And how do we ultimately get to that final state of having a full-blown, fully scoped, ongoing, effective win-loss analysis program that becomes transformational for the business because it's answering critical questions and gives us the insight we need to actually improve our win rates. So that's what we want to get into now is talking through some best practices um, that you can be thinking about how you might implement at your company to help your company take the next step in its evolution of how it practices win-loss analysis. And the first set of best practices center around optimizing your data quality. And we already hit on this a little bit with the win-loss maturity curve, but you need to be thinking about, is your analysis based on good, high-quality data? And the first tip is you need to prioritize buyer feedback over other internal data sources. You're not going to get a good answer about why you win and lose just by scouring your CRM and looking for answers there because 
the right answers just aren't there. The CRM tells you what is happening, which types of deals you're winning and losing, you know, how win rates are trending in different parts of the business, you know, or example like, oh, look, win rates are lower in Europe. I wonder why. But the CRM data doesn't tell you why it's happening. And sales rep feedback can start telling you why, but it's an internal perspective and it's limited and it's biased potentially. And so buyer feedback is what you really want to understand why you're really winning and losing. And this is a stat that we use a lot at close that comes from a, a, a sales book where, where the author actually compared data that had been captured about a whole bunch of deals. Some had they compared data reported by sales reps with data reported by the customers. And 60% of the time, the sales rep was wrong about why the deals were won and lost when they compared to what the buyer said. Um, you know, digging under the surface, it was like 32% of the time, the sales rep was completely, totally wrong. Like they didn't have anything right. 28% of the time, they were partially right, but they were missing critical information. So you just can't base your win-loss analysis on internally reported data from the sales team. And it's not that the sellers are done. I have a, I'm from a sales background, um, but just being introspective and honest as a seller, I know that the buyers don't tell me everything about why they make their decision. And if you can go to the buyer to get that answer, it's going to be much more accurate than what you hear from a sales rep. Hey, Andrew, got a got, got an interesting question coming in to the Q&A in regards to that sort of maturity model that you showed where the companies start out with their early, early uh, win-loss programs. And then obviously towards the right side uh, is, is the more ideal state. The, the question is, um, is it possible for a company of any size to go immediately to that right side, to that most mature level, or do the companies need to start with this sort of bare bones, you know, asking only the sales team and then grow from stage to stage until you get to that ideal state? In other words, yeah. if a company is small and all they can do is ask their sales folks right now, is that bad? Do they need to stop doing that and, and move over to the right side? Good question. That is a great question. So a few thoughts on that. It is possible to go straight to the right-hand side. Um, is it easy? No. And the reason it's not easy, it's not hard necessarily from a methodological standpoint. And now there's tools out there like Close that can help make it even easier from a tech enablement standpoint. But what's hard about it is that you've got to get executive level buy-in and support to jump straight to the ideal state. Like that's going to take top-down mandates. Like the CEO has got to be the one driving that. That's going to say, I don't care what resources it requires. I don't care what cost it requires. Like we need this data and we need it across our business and we need it in real time. We need it in an ongoing fashion and we need representation of our entire pipeline, they're usually the ones that are going to have the ability to drive that because win-loss is very cross-functional. And once you get into buyer feedback, you know, it's not cheap to get buyer feedback, especially depending on the methodology. And we'll compare and contrast using surveys versus interviews in a little bit. So it can be done, but it requires a high level of involvement and sponsorship at the executive level to do that. But it's actually easier to do that in a small company. 
Um, so that's the other side of this coin. It's very, it's, it's dramatically more difficult for a large enterprise that's got multiple product lines or business units to jump straight to the final phase um, just because of the complexity of their business. So if you're at a small business, it's actually more feasible to right from the get-go, get your executive team bought in and get the funding that's needed to just do it right from the very beginning. And you'll start getting way more value right from the very start, but it will take that executive level sponsorship. Big, big enterprises, it's, it's possible, I would say, to jump straight to that final stage for like a particular business unit or product line. If you get like whoever's the head of that product to sponsor it, you know, they can jump straight to it for, for that division of the company, but it'd be very, very, very difficult for a yeah, you're, you're working against years of solidified company culture in those in those cases too. So, that's yeah. well, that's very good. So folks out there who find themselves smacking that ad hoc middle zone don't need to feel guilty. They're doing what they can. Yeah. They're doing something which is better than nothing. Yes, yeah, something is better than nothing. And like <laughs> okay, that good. curve shows, the way we illustrated that curve is you get value along the way, but you get dramatically more value the further you get along that spectrum. So. Cool. Definitely do something rather than nothing. Start with sales rep internally reported feedback if you have to, because if nothing else, you're going to get value because it's going to drive the dialogue and the interest in further investment in moving along the curve as people start to question the integrity of that data. So it's, it's good to do something rather than nothing, but you definitely want to accelerate along that curve as much as you can by getting executive stakeholder buy-in. Now, the second thing I want to talk about, and we, we just touched on this a little bit, is interviews versus surveys. <clears throat> interviews are a better mechanism in a lot of ways for capturing buyer feedback about their decision process than surveys are. But really, those are the two options you have for going to buyers and hearing from them why they made the decision that they made. And to compare and contrast them for you, uh, we just put this table together. So what are the pros and cons of buyer interviews versus buyer surveys as your mechanism for tapping into your buyer's minds and hearing from them why they made the decision that they made? Interviews are better because the accuracy of the feedback is higher. Um, surveys are a good mechanism for getting feedback, but there are tendencies of survey participants. We saw this all the time when I was at Qualtrics, sometimes to skip questions, or to straight line responses, or just try to get the survey done, especially if you're incentivizing them. So you have to watch out for that. But in both cases, it's the buyer telling you their perspective. So as long as they're not, in essence, kind of cheating in the survey, you can rely on what they're telling you as being accurate. But interviews are better in that regard. Um, they're gonna have a hard, they're, they're, they're gonna be talking to a human with an interview. So they're gonna be pretty candid and open. And the depth of the feedback, the second one there is gonna be way better. Because if you have a skilled interviewer talking to them about their buying experience, they're going to open up and share things that, that just wouldn't be possible to capture in a survey. You know, in a quantitative instrument, you're going to get way less information than in a qualitative exercise like an interview. So an interview is far superior for really diving deep and understanding all the nuances of their decision-making process. And the other surprising thing about interviews is that the participation rates are actually substantially higher than survey participation rates. Um, and that surprises people because an interview is a much bigger commitment. 
And when we conduct interviews of buyers on behalf of our clients, we usually spend 25 to 30 minutes on the phone with them. Once a buyer gets on the phone and starts telling their story and divulging their buying experience, there is a lot to say. And they get talkative and they open up and they share really, really powerful information about their process that you just would never capture in a survey. And so it surprises people though that participation rates are so much higher across all industries, all buyer types, et cetera. You can generally, I think, safely assume based on our experience, somewhere in the ballpark of a 20% participation rate. It's lower for some of our customers than others. Uh, if you're selling to cybersecurity buyers that are <clears throat> chief information security officers that think everything's secret and private, they're going to participate at a lower rate than, than we've seen with like HR buyers. HR buyers are, are people, people. They, they're happy to participate. They might participate 30 to 40% of the time some, in some cases. Surveys are way lower. Surveys, you're going to get single digit participation rates, even if you pay an incentive. If you don't pay an incentive, it's going to be two, three, four, five percent. Usually there could be outliers, but generally speaking, if you pay an incentive, maybe pay them 10 bucks to participate, that's going to jump up a little bit. You might see six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent participation rates. Some companies are outliers. We see things that are strange that are way outside the norms from time to time, but these are, these are general expectations that you can have. And it's just another reason. And there's never been a case where survey participation rates have been higher or even close to interview participation rates. Um, the one benefit of surveys is the cost is much lower. It's a must, much more scalable cost-effective mechanism for capturing feedback. Um, but that's pretty much the only benefit of surveys. And so that's why, as we get back to this slide, we encourage most companies to interview as many buyers as possible, as, as economically feasible, and then survey the rest. Um, and we could get into a long, deep discussion with every single person on this call about the nature of their company's pipeline, the deal sizes, deal velocity, all these things that would influence your strategy of how often you interview versus survey. But for most companies, the answer is some hybrid between interviews and surveys, unless you have a very, very small pipeline, then you just because of the sheer numbers, you're going to want to interview your buyers to take advantage of the higher participation rates. The other thing to consider is leveraging a neutral third party. Um, it promotes candor from these, these participants. Um, it's a lot more comfortable for a buyer to divulge information like your competitor's pricing which competitor they chose if it was a loss, you know, things like that, that feel somewhat sensitive to a buyer, they're going to be much more reluctant to share with you directly than indirectly through a neutral third party. And that's just the psychology of it. Even though at the end of the day, they know that sharing it with the third party means they're sharing it with you. It's just a much more comfortable setting, comfortable conversation. The third party is probably going to be a more skilled interviewer um, that's going to probe a little bit more and more effectively to get at some of that information. And we've just found time and time again that the buyers surrender information that they wouldn't otherwise if they were talking directly to an employee. So that's another way that you can promote better data quality is to have a third party involved in capturing that feedback from your buyers on your behalf. <clears throat> the second topic for optimizing your program is thinking about pipeline coverage. We've touched on this a bit, but 
ideally, when you're in that ideal state, that ideal final state, you're going to be inviting every single buyer to give feedback. Um, I've talked about how I come from Qualtrics. With other research use cases, like NPS, for example, companies don't discriminate. They don't say, hey, we're just going to ask certain buyers to give us feedback. Delta Airlines doesn't say we're only going to ask certain passengers that meet certain criteria to give their feedback. They don't want to bias the feedback by doing that. And we find that in the early stages of the maturity curve, out of necessity, companies do tend to pick and choose and not kind of cherry pick deals that they're interested in hearing about. You know, the big deal that they lost, the one they know they lost to a certain competitor or whatever it might be. And, and on an individual deal by deal basis, you can uncover some really meaningful insight and use that for coaching and, and, and whatnot. But if you're trying to big picture, understand strategically what your business needs to do differently to win more business, you need to broaden your sample and try to get feedback from as many buyers as possible. And so it's the only way to ensure coverage of all your business segments. It ensures that your feedback sample will approximate your true win rate. If you're asking every buyer to give feedback, then generally you're gonna be in the ballpark when it comes to having the right representation of wins and losses, because that's another whole nother point. You definitely wanna be analyzing your wins, not just your losses. And in ideal state, you'd analyze approximately the, the same ratio of wins versus losses as what you have as your win rate. Um, doesn't have to be perfect, but that's the ideal state. And then <clears throat> doing it eliminates that cognitive bias that's associated with just cherry, pick, cherry picking deals to analyze. You, you can't go to your board and present win-loss findings and say, this is why we win and lose as a business. If your sample is made up of deals that you just cherry picked that you thought were interesting, like that's gonna, that's gonna shift the feedback entirely. So um, the other thing it will do is the more data you have, the more representative it is of your entire business, the more trust other leaders are going to have in your data that you're sharing back with them. That's going to drive action. You know, other leaders, if you come, if you do, if you run the program and say you're in product marketing or in product and you find like some of our clients have that one of the biggest reasons they're losing deals is because their sales team lacks empathy and isn't asking the right questions or tailoring demos. And then you go to the sales leadership team and you're like, Hey guys, I have this incredible groundbreaking insight for you your demos suck. They're going to be like, who are you to tell us that our demos are bad? You're not a seller. You don't know what's going on in the sales process. And you'll be like, well, I have the data from customers telling us this. And that will usually trump. That will usually win out unless they can poke holes in your approach and say like, well, which customers did you talk to? Did you talk to all our customers? You only picked losses. You only picked key losses. Of course, it's going to come through that the sales performance wasn't awesome. Like, what did you talk to our wins? So um, to have to build the most trust possible with other leaders in your org that are going to need to take action on this insight, you want the most representative sample as possible. And <clears throat> you also don't want to give sales reps veto power over feedback requests. Um, we've seen this in some orgs where non-sales leaders are sponsoring the win-loss program. And then they come and inform the sales team about it. And the sales team's like, hey, you need our permission to reach out to these people. And you're like, okay, all right. So we'll ask you on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. We'll ask the rep if it's okay. Sales reps will exercise that veto power all the time because they're a little, they don't want to get caught doing something wrong. They might feel like this is a witch hunt, which it's not. It's actually a program built to enable them to win more deals, but they might 
interpret it the wrong way and just start vetoing deals. So my recommendation to you is to go and get concrete buy-in from sales leadership at the outset before you start the program and make them a key stakeholder and a key party to how this program is structured, what the approach is gonna be, why you're doing it the way you're doing it. You might even find that they'll contribute budget because this is an important need that they need to address too. And as they, if they buy into your approach and your methodology that you're using, they might say, hey, we'll contribute. Like we, we've got a big budget as a sales team, let us help pay for this program. Then you've got the sales leadership team bought in and they're gonna be able to, to tell their sales reps, you know what, we're doing this guys and you don't get to say no, like we're going to reach out to the buyers and get their feedback because it's in our best interest as a company and as a sales team. And it's in your best interest as a sales rep to hear candid feedback about how you're performing in the sales process, what you can do different and what the company can do differently to empower you to win more deals. So just know that that's, that's a hiccup. That's a challenge that a lot of product people, product marketers have run into as they've tried to get their initiative going. And you can, you can overcome that from the very start if you're just aware of it. And if you get the sales leadership team bought in and, and, and you know, an advocate with you for the program. And then it does help once you're going out, getting this buyer feedback, getting it from as many buyers as possible, using that hybrid strategy of surveys and interviews to augment that feedback with the internal data. As we talked about earlier, the CRM tells you what's happening, which deals you're winning and losing. There's, there's interesting information in there that gives context about those deals, the segment, the products, the deal size, that sort of information is really powerful on the back end. Once you've captured the, the reasons why you're winning and losing, if you can tie it to that, that metadata from the CRM, that's powerful. And you can cut your win-loss data and look at it based on those fields from the CRM, things like segment, region, whatever it might be. So you definitely want to plan your program accordingly to make sure that you bring that data through and make it incorporate it into your, your strategy for analyzing the feedback. And the sales feedback can be interesting too. Um, to have a mechanism for capturing that sales feedback that you're still running in tandem with the buyer feedback to start comparing like what what is you know is the sales team in tune with what buyers are saying are they way missing the mark you know, those, there can be some interesting insights that come from comparing what buyers are saying to what your sales reps say are the reasons deals are won and lost so these are all different ways that you can optimize your pipeline coverage uh, by inviting every buyer to give feedback through surveys and interviews um, not letting sales reps block deals from being invited for feedback and by using the CRM and sales feedback as, as additional data sources to sort of fill gaps and give more context to the data you captured from buyers. The third area to think about is the real-time nature of the feedback. How relevant and recent is the feedback that you're getting and that you're relaying back to the rest of the org? If you have a slow, clunky manual process that's driving your win-loss program, and it takes you two months to pull the data and two more months to reach out and get the feedback from the buyers. And then by the time you put a report together, it's six months since the deals happened. That's, that's not gonna be as powerful to your organization when you're like, hey, this is, this is what we heard. This is why we're winning and losing, but by the way, it's six months old. So companies that are progressing to that final stage of maturity, have realized along the way that they need timely answers about why they're winning and losing and they want to get the insights as quickly as possible 
and feed it back to the org as soon as possible. Uh, the first thing you got to do is invite them, the buyers, to give the feedback as soon as possible. Um, you can do that by building a process that's CRM integrated. And that's why we're moving into a new phase, a new paradigm for win-loss analysis, where there are new tools and technologies being provided by vendors like Closed to help you with this, to help you with the integration with the CRM, to automate a workflow and process where you don't have to be so involved and hands-on with picking and choosing deals that get feedback. You can set up an intelligent rule-based approach that's CRM integrated that just initiates the feedback and invites people to give feedback automatically. And those cadences are already set up and feedback just starts flowing back rather than having to do so much manual work to drive the process. And so even if you're building something internally and you're not using other tools, you know, work with your sales operations team. Th those people are super savvy with systems and they could set up an approach. Even if you decide we're not going to do interviews, we're just going to start with surveys of our buyers because it's more cost, it's cheaper. Um, you know, you can work with them and they can procure a survey tool and you can build that feedback form and they can integrate it to automatically send an invite from sales. There's so much that savvy sales operators can do to automate things as well. So just put yourself, work towards putting yourself in a position where you're not the bottleneck. You're not the person that's doing all this heavy lifting and manual work to export deal data, send emails, make phone calls, set up Zoom links, like get on these, do the interviews yourself. Like that's gonna be slow and burdensome and it's not gonna allow you to scale into a full-blown org-wide, pipeline-wide win-loss analysis program. It's just gonna block you entirely from ever getting there. So think about how you can leverage internal resources and or bring on external resources and tools that can help you automate this whole process. And then as you capture this feedback and it's coming back in real time, and now buyers are getting invited to give feedback within a week or two of their decision, as opposed to four months later, as that data flows in, you need to alert your stakeholders in real time about new deal feedback. And that makes your program just incredibly sticky and meaningful in your organization. And people will fall in love with it when they start to see a steady stream of insight coming through and they're getting notified about insights that have come from recently, like really recently won and lost deals. <clears throat> and there are tools for that too now that are being built. You know, think about Slack or whatever internal messaging system you use. What if you're hitting that, hitting a channel, a win-loss channel, or you're hitting a product team channel with any deals where there's insights about the product and that's just coming through regularly where they're, they now have this cadence where they're seeing deals and hearing from customers and, and developing this empathy and understanding for buyers because they have this ongoing steady stream of real-time feedback about why deals were won and lost and what product had to do with it or what pricing had to do with it, you know, what the, what the sales org and sales execution had to do with the outcome of the deal. Like there's incredible things you can do to drive action in your organization by automating the process, making it real-time, making the feedback more recent, and then pushing that out through channels like email and messaging tools so that people are hearing it in real time. And then the last tip that I want to talk about is just stakeholder engagement. We touched on this earlier with the question that was asked about the maturity curve. You can jump the curve 
if you have great stakeholder engagement, especially from the C-suite. And this is one thing that's going to change. I guarantee it. I saw the same thing happen with NPS and employee engagement research. Companies first started kind of messing around with NPS and messing around with employee engagement research, like feedback from your employees about their engagement and satisfaction as employee. And then it was one-off projects and hire agencies to help you. And then technologies like Qualtrics or Medallia or Glint or Coltrane came along that, that automated the process and helped you scale the process. And companies now suddenly, some companies suddenly had like real-time insight about how satisfied their employees were and about MPS scores and things like that. And there came an inflection point for us at Qualtrics where instead of us preaching and helping our customers who were champions to educate the rest of their org about why they needed to be doing NPS on an ongoing basis, it flipped entirely. And suddenly it was top down. Suddenly executives had FOMO if they weren't doing it. If they, if they couldn't answer to their board, here's what our NPS score is in real time, or here's how engaged our employees are. Like they look bad as an executive. They looked like they were out of the loop. They looked like they didn't have the data that they needed to drive their business forward. And it flipped to where it was these top down mandates. Like we have to be doing this. And they were coming to the team's in the org saying, where's this data? Do it now. What do we have to do? What do we have to pay? What resources do we need to make this happen? And that's that inflection point will come eventually. And you can drive that timeline in your own org by educating your C-suite about how important this practice is and how game-changing it's going to be at the executive level for them to be informed in the decisions they're making with real-time scale win-loss data. So try to get that sponsorship, try to drive that internal conversation and if you do it successfully, you're going to be a hero in your organization. Everyone's going to know that you were the champion that drove this initiative, that made this difference, that transformed your company from working off of anecdotes and conjecture to being data-driven as far as why deals are won and lost and what the company can do to win more. And you're going to be the face of that. And it's going to change your business and it's going to change your career. So it's worth it, even though it's a lot of work and it can be a challenge. It's worth fighting that uphill battle. And another thing you can do to be successful is embrace transparency and get your organization to embrace transparency um, and root out what I call or what's broadly called cognitive avoidance. The definition of that is it's a term that represents several strategies that people or organization use like distraction, worry, thought suppression, aimed at avoiding or escaping thoughts about undesirable situations or problems. Sometimes people are gonna hate to hear what comes through your win-loss program. Like they, maybe they already know that the UI of your product is terrible and it looks like it was built in Bill Gates' basement in Seattle in the 80s. Like that might be painful for people in the organization to hear and to see like deals are being lost over and over and over again because the user experience is terrible. And there's people in products that own that UX that are, it's gonna hurt to hear it, but you can't, Ignore it. You've got to be open culturally to transparency and to embracing truth and to be willing to hear things that are hard to hear so that you can get better as a company. So encourage that in your culture. And as you work with executive sponsors, make sure to talk about it openly and talk about, you know, some of this feedback is going to be painful. What can we do as a leadership team to make sure we are ready as a company to hear some painful truths about what's happening in the sales experience and with our buyers so that we can get better as a company. And then 
<clears throat> summarize and publish key insights at regular intervals. Um, these are just some screenshots as examples, like get the information out in front of the other stakeholders. Don't be a bottleneck and don't feel like you have to be the, the one that has all the answers that everyone has to come to to find out why they win and lose. Be the enablement tool, the catalyst that gets all the information out to the rest of the org and drives dialogue and decisions by making this information widely available. And again, there are tools that are available now that weren't available 10 years ago that help you summarize, visualize, and share win-loss insight in really, really compelling ways that will make a huge difference for your business. So final thought, we've talked through a lot of things that you can do. Some of them might sound overwhelming. You can just start where you are in that maturity curve and take one or two lessons you've learned from today to take the next step forward with your program. But this is a great comment from, from Gary Cottrell, the VP of product marketing at a software company called Exactly. He said, after having been through this maturity process and fought through it and got his company to a point where they were doing this on a broader scale in real time, delivering these insights back to the rest of the org. He said that added intelligence of understanding why we win and lose deals has had a very meaningful impact on our go-to-market strategy. It is amazing the information that a company will share about their experience in the sales process, their perceptions of your products, and even how they perceived your competition. This data becomes a cornerstone for our competitive intelligence and is very influential in our product roadmap. So hopefully there's something today that's a takeaway for you that you can use in your journey of win-loss analysis to kind of take the next step forward towards that outcome that, that Gary and the team exactly have had with their, their win-loss program. So. Andrew, this is fantastic. The Q&A is exploding with questions. Everybody is engaged and anxious to ask you uh, about their individual circumstances. And just to be mean, I'm going to delay the Q&A because you've got the slide up here to promote the next of the product chat series. So join us for the next product chat, September 15th. 1 p.m. Eastern time. We are going to welcome Arano Berube, Senior PMM at Zillow, for a conversation on how to approach your go-to-market strategies in a way that aligns objectives across your organization and reduces risk. Everybody wants that. Uh, go ahead and register for that in the link that uh, we have just posted in the chat. There it is from Pragmatic Institute. That big long URL there is how you will get yourself into that next of the product chat series. There we go. Okay, we got that out of the way. And that means, Andrew, um, I'm going to do my best to pick and choose some of the questions that apply broadly to everybody. But oh my goodness, so many good questions coming in. Uh, in fact, let's say right now, because there's no way we're going to get to all of them, Andrew. Uh, for the folks that have questions that we're unfortunately not going to get to in the next, you know, five or 10 minutes, uh, where can folks reach out to you to get further clarification on some of these? Yeah, that's a beautiful slide you've got there. Awesome. You feel free to reach out to me personally. If you've got a question for me, happy to respond. You can email me, you can message me on LinkedIn. Um, if you've got broader, like methodological questions, which a lot of you probably do, send them my way but also we've got a ton of resources on the closed website uh, if you go to the resources section of the website we've got a learning center about win loss analysis that has great content we've got a guide you can download that's a really thorough like eight phase step-by-step -step guide to implementing a win loss program 
Uh, we also have, like on my shirt here, we've got an event going on next week, a virtual portion of the event. It's called Win Loss Week. There's some great sessions and tracks from practitioners, not from clothes, but from people like you and organizations where they're running win-loss analysis. They're going to share some great best practices and uh, success stories and, and things like that. So you could also check out, I think we'll share in the, in the chat, a link to the Win Loss Week registration page so that you could sign up for and see if there's some sessions that you could get value out of from, from that event that we're putting on. So Awesome. Well, I hope you're ready for a, a flood of emails there, my friend, because uh, the interest is here. Uh, let's get to as many of them as we can. So I think by far, as I'm looking through the questions, most of the questions or the majority of the questions were about participation. I'm going to cover a couple of them here. So uh, we've got question about, in my experience, the main challenge we faced was participation. Uh, Amit writes, my biggest challenge is getting a recent closed one lost client, our prospect to, uh, to agree to a win-loss interview. Uh, and Michael says, we've emailed clients, but get very few replies. Andrew, um, how do you get people to participate in this? And is there a difference if you're doing this in-house versus having a third party conduct them for you? Yeah, great question. You know, this is an example of something that is a difficult challenge when you're trying to, to be the one to do everything with your win-loss program. Like it's just becoming an expert on how to drive participation rates is a whole another field of study than how to conduct a great win-loss interview, or how to build an effective win-loss survey, how to tie themes together across win-loss interviews and surveys in a methodology and format that's gonna be meaningful and reportable to your stakeholders. Like there's just things like this that it takes expertise to do well. Um, so with participation rates, there's no one silver bullet. Uh, this is the world I come from too at Qualtrics of trying to drive higher participation rates in, in survey research. One of the products that I GM'd at Qualtrics was a participation product that, uh, that facilitated incentivization and tracking of participation and getting people uh, to participate and then tracking their history of participation in surveys over time. So it's a world I've been in. And um, a couple tips, you know, messaging, You've got to A-B test it. Not all messaging, email messaging to invite people to participate in research is created equal. Um, there's really bad messaging that can totally torture participation rates. And there's good messaging that's going to get people uh, to agree a decent, decent amount of time. Um, so that's a skill set. That's just something you have to, to try or talk to someone that's done before, see what they're using or work with a vendor like Close that, that has done a lot of testing and, and has pre-built messaging. Um, there's, there's little subtle things that need to be done. Um, working with a third party helps a lot. Like participation rates go up naturally because the buyers are more comfortable working or talking to the third party. But you have, there's one watch out with that. And it's that, is the third party credible? Like, are they going to feel like it's spammy when they hear from this company they haven't heard of from before? So there's ways to overcome that though and take advantage of the third party to drive higher participation rates with things like introductory emails, like having a lead member of your leadership team have a note crafted that, that goes out to these individuals that comes from your domain that's highly credible it's got your branding on it that's an important person at your company that they're gonna be like wow this person cares about my feedback that then specifies like hey we really care about your feedback in fact 
we've contracted with a third party called XYZ that's gonna be contacting you shortly. And I just wanted to reach out and encourage you to participate. You know, that can help. Incentivization does help. Uh, it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't make a dramatic difference as much as people think, but um, you know, we work with our customers to pay anywhere from $25 to $150 incentives. Um, and we've done a lot of testing. It's interesting to see that at certain dollar values, this participation rates spike higher. You could pay someone more, but get a lower participation rate than if you paid them a lesser amount, just depending on what that is. So incentives, incentives can help, um, but it's not going to revolutionize the participation rate. You might see like a 10 to 20% bump. If you have a 10% particip participation rate now with your interviews and you start paying an incentive, you might see that jump to to 12, 13, 14, 15%, but you're not going to see it jump to 40%. So Okay, that still seems significant. That seems that seems worthwhile. Yeah, that, that kind of a jump. We yeah, do it, we do it on all interviews for the most part for our clients. We just have to watch out in certain regulatory cases depending on industry. Right, right, buy. right. And most of those incentives then are, are you talking like uh, uh, gift cards? Is some sort of monetary incentive, or yeah, you know, it's uh, good, other it's good, good options? It's it's good just to play it safe. It's good to stay from away from like a cash incentive and focus more okay. on like a redeemable gift card, something that they can, they can choose from various retailers. So there's some selection in it. It feels, you know, you're not just jamming a particular retailer down their throat. They can choose. It also helps if you've got some sort of way out, if they don't feel like they should accept an incentive because of company policy or something, you can have an optional charitable donation component to it. If you're in a highly, highly regulated industry, you can just go with a, with a charitable donation on their behalf and that can help. Cool. Um, so awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to try and sneak in another one or two here. I know we're up against time folks. So, uh, we want to, uh, uh, respect that if you've got stuff to do today, um, you will get a recording so you won't miss anything, but Andrew, I'm going to throw a couple more here at you. If you got the time. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, definitely. Here's a, here's a cool one. Uh, Alvin asks, should you treat trial subscriptions the same as regular subscriptions in your win-loss analysis? And, and Jessica chimed in, similarly, renewals, are they treated similar to new sales in this analysis? So do you, is it worthwhile to break down and, and specify subscriptions, renewals uh, in your win-loss analysis? Yeah, you, I mean, you want to pay attention to those factors because it's a different setting for those buyers. And so you want to use different messaging that will apply to them in their situation, the state that they're at in their journey with your company. So you'd want to cater messaging. The methodology really doesn't change much and you're going to get incredible value out of all of those touch points. Um, churn is very popular with our customer base. Um, churn, you know, like I said, you've got to speak to them a little bit differently with their messaging and acknowledge the fact that you know They've been a customer and been on that journey with you. You don't want to use the same canned messaging as you would for your, your prospective buyers. But once you tailor that, just also recognize the nature of the feedback is going to be different. So you're going to want to, in your analysis, break those apart and look at them separately um, from the other decision points, um, like an upfront win or loss. So with churn, we found that there's way, way more robust product feedback from those individuals because they've had hands-on experience. Buyers who are new or who didn't choose you, it's really just perception of your product that they're giving feedback about, which is super important. The, the perception prospects have of your product is as important as 
what your product really actually does because it's affecting their decision to buy. But with churn, you get actual customers that have had hands-on experience. So it skews way more heavily towards product feedback and relationship-based feedback of what their experience was with you as a customer. But it's equally as valuable as upfront win-loss analysis and you know, customers of ours are generally covering both of those touch points with their with their win-loss program. Right. You mentioned churn. That reminded me of a, quest, of a question from Stephen that came in who says, similar to churn or NPS scores, are there industry standards maybe broken down by industry type for average win-loss rates that one should be looking to achieve at a minimum? Anything like that out there, Andrew? Yeah. I, not that I have seen. So we're entering a new world. Um, there's, I mean, you can find occasionally some like syndicated research, that's primary research that someone like a Gartner or Accenture has probably done that could tell you what win rates look like for different spaces, but it's going to be very broad. Um, it's one thing that we're optimistic that, that a company like Close will be able to tackle for our customers as our customer base grows um, because we are, you know, the technology now integrates with with the CRM like Salesforce and pulls in all the one and lost deals and we can have a standardized definition for win rate and provide those benchmarks. So it's an ambition that we have as a company. It's not something that I've seen productized uh, yet, but would be, I imagine, very, very helpful to companies if they could compare, especially within their own space against their own competitors and what right. does our look like. Exciting. Well, we are absolutely up against our time here, Andrew. I'm going to I'm going to end with uh, this one last question here that we like to ask our guests sometimes. And that is if you were to have our audience today, just choose two things to do differently based on what you've spoken about today. What do you think those two things would be that they could get the most use out of? Yeah, you know, it's we talked about maturity curve. So everyone's in a different state. So I don't know if there's two two silver bullet things overall, but I would say, you know, big picture, two things everybody needs to do, regardless of where they're at in the maturity curve for win-loss analysis is one, drive ever greater executive stakeholder buy-in and adoption of the program. Your life is gonna get so much easier. It will become a tailwind behind the initiative if you get the executives bought in and, and supporting the program and consuming the feedback. So. That, that would be number one, is work really hard to elevate the initiative, to have the attention and buy-in of executive stakeholders. And then the other is just that if you want real answers about why you're winning and losing business, you've got to go to the buyers to get their feedback. So use some mechanism and do some amount of direct buyer feedback, soliciting their feedback and not trying to to, to develop an understanding around why you wouldn't lose by looking at internally reported data in your CRM or from your sales team. Fantastic. Andrew, it has been such a pleasure to have you here. I feel smarter just for being in the same Zoom with you today. And I'm sure that uh, I speak for everyone here in this huge list of question and participation in the, in the Q&A and the chat today. So thank you so much. Um, folks, join us, of course, for the next in the product chat series, September 15th. And if we didn't get to your questions, I apologize. Andrew's had his email up this entire time. So, uh, Andrew, uh, good luck over the weekend answering all these questions that are surely going to flood your way, my friend. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. Everybody <laughs> for coming. It was a lot of fun. Love talking about it.
Everybody, we'll see you again next time on the Pragmatic Institute product chat. Have a fantastic rest of your week.